You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Well, good afternoon, everyone, on this lovely day, and welcome to the International Spy Museum. Uh, we're delighted to have you here, and I'm glad to see there's a very good crowd for a very fine book. I, uh, I'd like to start this book by just making, uh, or to start my introduction by just making a reference to a gentleman a number of you have heard of, I'm sure his name was John Dean. And he was a special assistant to President Nixon. And uh, he got to spend a lot of quality time testifying in Congress uh, because of the plumbers and so forth. And one of his offhand comments, which the press picked up, was, Washington is a wonderful place if you get to ask the questions. Well, when I was in CIA as spokesman, there were all sorts of people covering us, one of whom was today's speaker, Doug Waller. So now that you've written a book and you're going to stand up here, I will get to ask the questions along with our audience. So it's good for you to experience that other that other side of the uh, the other side of the aisle. Doug uh, it was a correspondent at that time, by the way, for Newsweek, and he later went with Time Magazine, and it was there he stayed for some 12 years and later retired. He covered all the beats in Washington. He covered the White House, Congress, the State Department, and of course the intelligence community. And before that, he'd worked as a uh, uh, with the Representative Markey on the Hill and with Senator Proxmire. And I should mention, by the way, he's written a number of books, uh, and I'll mention three. Uh, one is The Commandos, which was the inside story of America's secret soldiers, Big Red, the three-month voyage of a Trident nuclear submarine, and third book was A Question of Loyalty, General Billy Mitchell and the Court Martial That Gripped the Nation. And of course today, it's Wild Bill Donovan, uh, the spy master who created the OSS and modern American espionage. Donovan, when I joined the CIA, was a name. Uh, he died some two years after I left. And of course, the director then was Alan Dulles. And he was always a name that we never knew a lot about, really. There, weren't, there wasn't much in the way of good literature on Donovan. Later, there, was a, there, was, there were some 
uh, biographies of him written. But you know, we're spoiled because we're used to books that are coming out now about administrations while the administrations are still there by some of the principals who've still been there. So we're spoiled because we have these wonderful insights into bureaucratic infighting, how some of the issues are resolved. We didn't have that as much for Donovan. So it's such a pleasure to see you have done a book that captures so much of the man and so much of the bureaucratic infighting that was going on in that period. You know, I think people don't realize that. They think intelligence just appeared full-blown and here it is, howsoever they think of it. So it is a pleasure to have you here today, Doug. Look forward to your presentation. So please help me welcome Doug Wallace. And Doug will be here to sign his book after the presentation. Doug? Thanks, Peter. It's nice to be here. Uh, I, I'm glad they have the photo of Donovan up here. This is really kind of an iconic portrait shot of Donovan. You'll see that when you go to the OSS Society meetings. Uh, and this is the one commonly folks commonly identify him with. Actually, there's a funny story behind it. Uh, you'll notice he has his hair is cut real short here. Actually, he's got a crew cut. He was out in the field most of the time when he was running the OSS, and he liked to go in on landings, uh, allied landings, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And very often, he would have the ship's barber or the military barber give him a crew cut uh, before he went out. Of course, when he got back to headquarters, he would get teased by the uh, headquarters staff. Uh, in fact, uh, Wallace Duell, who was on his personal staff, would pop his head in and say, hey, that's some uh, haircut you got there, uh, mister. And Donovan laughed. He loved it. And he got a lot of these haircuts because he was out in the field a lot and made a lot of military landings. The book Wild Bill Donovan is really three stories. Okay, It's a biography of a, of a truly uh, heroic figure who suffered actually a lot of personal tragedy in his life. It's a spy story uh, with uh, a lot of accounts of uh, very daring operations that they, they conducted. And as Peter mentioned, it's also a story of political intrigue, political intrigue at the highest levels of government in Washington and also overseas. That part of it was the one that probably interest, interested me the most. The personal story on Donovan, it's a very, very rich one. I would have actually loved to have been a reporter back then covering Donovan. And in fact, I probably would have. Donovan liked reporters. Uh, he leaked to them uh, very frequently. He had reporters on his staff. When he went overseas, uh, particularly before he joined or formed the OSS, he would uh, work sometimes part-time as a reporter. He, uh, he was an interesting man. He was probably about this high, actually fairly short, one large. Uh, it, when he ran the OSS in his 60s, the female agents, some of them, thought he was actually kind of penguin-shaped. Uh, and some of them even mentioned it to him, and he kind of laughed and he kind of didn't. He slept probably five hours or less a night, could speed read at least three books a week. He was an excellent ballroom dancer. He loved to sing Irish songs. He would go buy up sheet music uh, of Broadway musicals so he could memorize the words. He didn't smoke. He rarely drank. He enjoyed fine dining, but unfortunately that put on the weight. He uh, spent lavishly with no concept for a dollar. Whenever he was out uh, traveling, he always had an aide with him who always kept money because Donovan never had any on him and he was always mooching off his aide. 
He uh, never showed anger. Anger, Instead, he let it boil inside him. He was rakishly handsome as a young man, and even into his uh, senior years, he had bright blue eyes that women found captivating. But his life was also filled with personal tragedy. His daughter, his daughter-in-law, uh, and a granddaughter all died at very early ages. He was born New Year's Day, 1883, in Buffalo, New York's poor Irish uh, First Ward. He thought at one point he was going to be a, a Catholic priest, but then he decided he really wasn't cut out for the cloth. So he went to uh, Columbia University, was a quarterback of the Columbia football team his senior year, then went on to Columbia Law School. Franklin Roosevelt, incidentally, was a classmate of Donovan's, although the two never mixed. Roosevelt was from a much higher social strata than Donovan was, uh, so they never uh, really talked to each other in law school. He returned to Buffalo, became a successful lawyer, married into Protestant wealth uh, there. In World War I, he won the Medal of Honor for heroism uh, in combat. He was absolutely fearless in combat. In fact, his chaplain, Father Francis Duffy, said that Donovan was the few guys he'd ever met who actually enjoyed combat. Okay. He commanded a battalion in the 69th Irish Regiment, a very famous New York City regiment. And uh, when he won the Medal of Honor, he was the executive officer and the ground commander. That's also where he got the nickname Wild Bill. Before uh, the U.S. entered into the war and Donovan had his troops in Europe training him, he put him through just absolutely grueling, brutal uh, training. And at one time, after a long march, and they'd been running all day with full packs and crawling through obstacle courses, his men all collapsed in front of him, and he got up there and he said, well, you know, what the hell's the matter with you? I've been, uh, you know, running the same course with you, and I haven't broken a sweat, and I'm not even panning. And out of the back somewhere, some trooper uh, yelled out, he never found out who, but we're not as wild as you are, Bill. From that day on, while Bill Donovan stuck, okay? He claimed to be upset with the nickname, that it ran counter to his kind of professional, cool, quiet image. But his uh, wife, Ruth, knew that he really liked it. He returned to New York a hero. In 1932, he ran as a Republican candidate for governor of New York. Uh, he was running against uh, Lieutenant Governor Herbert Lehman, who was uh, Roosevelt's lieutenant governor. Of course, in 32, uh, Roosevelt made his first run for the presidency. Donovan's ultimate goal was to be the country's first Irish Catholic president. And New York was the ideal stepping stone uh, for a launch for the presidency. He ended up running as much against FDR as he did against Herbert Lehman. Said some very nasty things about uh, Roosevelt because he was, he was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican and he thought the whole New, New Deal idea was crazy. So at one point he called Roosevelt crafty. You know, back then that was fighting words. Or he called him at one, on another campaign stop a Hyde Park faker because Roosevelt claimed that he was a gentleman farmer at Hyde Park and Donovan thought that was ridiculous. Uh, Roosevelt, on the other hand, took his shot at, shots at Donovan. He had surrogates whack him on the campaign trail. In fact, even Eleanor Roosevelt went out and campaigned for uh, Lehman and took some shots at Donovan. Donovan actually turned out to be a horrible campaigner. Okay? If he was in this room talking to you, he would totally mesmerize you uh, with those bright blue eyes uh, and that charismatic personality. 
On the campaign trail before a large group, he was totally wooden. He was a terrible speaker. In fact, his lieutenant governor, the one running uh, with him uh, on the Republican ticket, Truby Davison, thought he was so lousy that Davison thought he should have run for governor and Donovan should have been a lieutenant governor so he'd been kept out of the way. It's amazing that Roosevelt later made Donovan his spymaster, considering all the nasty things they'd said about each other in the 32 campaign. But fast forward to 1940-41, Roosevelt is preparing the country for war. He's building up defenses. He knows he's got to mobilize uh, the country for what's coming uh, down in the future. Donovan is, uh, was a member of really the, the internationalist wing of the Republican Party. He too believed that the country needed to mobilize for war uh, and needed to build up defenses and prepare. Roosevelt also was beginning to think about forming uh, a coalition cabinet, much of the way uh, Winston Churchill did uh, in London. So he was bringing in Republicans. Both men found them, uh, each other useful. In 1940 and 41, Roosevelt sent Donovan on two unofficial trips to Europe. The first one in 1940 was to uh, England, basically to assess whether Britain could survive the war, whether uh, the Nazis would defeat him or whether they'd ultimately come out the winter. Donovan came back and reported that uh, Britain could survive the war, but it would need uh, U.S. arms and aid, uh, in particular Lend-Lease. The second time he went over in late 1940, early 41, he had long, a long meeting with Winston Churchill, and at Ch Churchill's behest, he took a tour of Eastern Europe and the Balkans and the Middle East, basically to deliver uh, for Churchill and also for Roosevelt, too. Again, he was on an unofficial basis there but deliver the message that FDR did not intend to uh, let Great Britain lose this war. And so if you, a Balkan leader, are deciding which side you're going to be on, you better be on the winning side, uh, and that winning side is going to be the Allies. Churchill was delighted with that message that uh, Donovan conveyed. In fact, he paid for his trip. Uh, and in fact, at one point, he had an escort, escort Donovan around. It was Ian Fleming the uh, fame, you know, who later became the uh, James Bond novelist. The State Department, however, was uh, privately upset about the trip because here was Donovan going around to its uh, embassies and foreign posts and meeting with foreign leaders with no diplomatic standing either in, in the United, United States government or the British government. At one point, uh, State Department aides debated internally whether he should be prosecuted for violating the Logan Act, which uh, makes it a crime for a private U.S. citizen to represent the U.S. government in foreign negotiations. FDR, on the other hand, was delighted that Donovan was out there delivering this message and you know, bringing back intelligence for him. Because in 1940-41, he really had no, this is the president, really no uh, foreign intelligence service to speak of. There were small units in the Army and the Navy, but there, uh, there wasn't really a lot of officers there. And, and many of the officers, uh, it was considered a dumping ground for poor performers uh, in the intelligence units at the time. So Roosevelt was making major foreign policy decisions at this time, decisions that could affect his own re-election, uh, such as Lend-Lease, operating nearly blind to what lay, lay ahead of him overseas. And it worried him. In fact, it worried him so much that at times he became physically ill. 
Okay, when Donovan comes back from those diplomatic missions, that's when our spy story begins. In July 1941, before Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt signs an executive order, very short executive order, it's about two pages, very, very vague. It only, it said that uh, Colonel Donovan, because he'd been a colonel in World War I, will collect information for me of uh, national importance, importance, and he'll do other unspecified duties. Okay, and this was setting up uh, an organization called the Coordinator of Information. It later became the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS as we know it, but back initially it was the Coordinator of Information. It was such a vague order that Roosevelt's other cabinet officers started scratching their heads thinking, you know, what the heck is this guy up to? You know, what are you getting, getting into? And he had to send out follow-up memos to explain exactly what this Coordinator of Information business was all about. Donovan liked to say that he began his uh, unit, his OSS, from minus zero. In effect, he really only started out with one guy, which was Wild Bill Donovan. Okay. And in the beginning, he was kind of like a player in a pickup basketball game, looking for agents or operations or covers wherever he really could find it. So, for example, the Phillips Lamp Company sold lamps overseas. Donovan made an arrangement uh, with the Phillips Lamp Company salesmen when they went on their overseas calls, particularly in occupied countries, countries the Axis occupied. If they ran across anything of interest for him in their sales call, they reported back to Donovan. The Eastman Kodak Company, remember my day, you know, it used to be the brownie camera, I guess they have the disposable cameras now. Back in Donovan's day, they had thousands of camera clubs all over the United States. And so Donovan arranged for Eastman Kodak to send him photos members of the camera club had taken overseas of possibly militarily important sites. Pan American Airways, Airways Pan Am, okay? Donovan signed secret contracts uh, with some of its employees, its ticket agents in, in Africa, to be on the lookout and provide him any information of Nazis moving around in Africa. In fact, the operation was codenamed Cigar. Donovan also cooked up all kinds of wild schemes. He was interested in any idea, no matter how crazy it was, uh, and he was really, w really willing to try almost anything. His code number on all the OSS documents, the secret documents, was 109 which was his room number uh, in his headquarters. And the headquarters was located on Navy Hill, just across from what now is the State Department. His secretaries, actually, they had their own code name for Donovan. They used to call him Seabiscuit after the uh, racehorse, you know, because they always saw him running all around uh, and they could never keep track of him. He kept uh, $2,000 in a desk drawer uh, in his desk that he used to pay uh, any sources that he met. And he was constantly darting around Washington on secret rendezvous. Only his chauffeur really knew where he was to pay off uh, sources. He's his R&D chief, his research and development chief, a guy named Stanley Lovell, who was a very well-known uh, inventor, New England inventor of his time, dreamed up all kinds of spy gadgets, new spy gadgets for uh, Donovan, miniature cameras, pistols with silencers, uh, pencil-like explosive devices. One idea Stanley Lovell and Donovan were really high on were truth drugs. And so they uh, decided to experiment uh, a particular truth drug on a mafia thug, uh, a guy named Little Augie. 
okay, who was a New York, you know, low-level mobster. And one of Donovan's officers, who had been a former New York City cop and had busted little Augie several times, had him up to his apartment uh, for smokes and a chat. And laced in the cigarette, cigarette where, uh, was this truth drug chemical. And so little Augie starts puffing away and laughing and giving, having a silly grin on his face and eventually starts telling the OSS officer about the mob hits he'd carried out, you know, working with Lucky Luciano and all the congressmen he'd bribed. Uh, unfortunately, Donovan couldn't use any of it in the court, and Lo uh, Little Augie's secret were, secrets were secure with the OSS because they didn't want to have it out that they were testing a truth drug. He proposed, at one point, Donovan proposed that Roosevelt have a button at his desk that he could push at any time, and it would transmit a radio message to every radio in the United States, warning them if you know, the Japanese were going to attack or the uh, Germans were going to attack New York. Roosevelt ignored the idea, but Roosevelt enjoyed listening to all of Donovan's ideas. Uh, he was really open to it. Donovan was kind of his spark plug for thinking out of the box. So, and Roosevelt, from his early days as a young man, was always intrigued with espionage and spying. In fact, uh, Donovan thought he was a real spy buff all along. So, for example, uh, one of the ideas uh, Stanley Lovell's men tested was fitting bats, you know, bats that are in, in the eaves of houses, with incendiary devices. And they thought they dropped the bats over Tokyo. The bats would fly into the eaves of the paper and wood houses. The incendiary device would go off and it burned down all the houses in Tokyo. This was actually an idea that Eleanor Roosevelt picked up from somebody. She passed it on to Franklin. He thought it was pretty cool. And he passed it on to Donovan. So Stanley Lovell and his men got out there over some desert, I've forgotten where, uh, and dropped, fitted these bats with this incendiary device, dropped them out of a plane. Poor thing sunk like a stone. You know, the idea didn't work. But Donovan was willing to try anything. In addition to being the father of American espionage, modern American espionage, and also of special operations, if you go down to the U.S. Special Operations Command at Tampa, Florida, there are, photo, there are portraits of Donovan there and, and one of his uniform and the uniforms. They consider him the father of special operations, too. Donovan was also father, the father of information warfare, as we see it today, psychological operations. Back in his day, they called it morale operations, and their technology was fairly crude. It consisted mainly of leaflets, rumors, uh, newspaper articles, and radio. So, for example, he had OSS officers plant rumors in papers in the U.S., the New York Times, and overseas that uh, top Nazis were fleeing Germany uh, for South America and leaving the Germans high and dry. Marlena Dietrich you know, very, very famous uh, singer back then, sang for a lot of the radio propaganda uh, broadcasts that Donovan broadcast into German, to, to German troops. There were, for example, the League of Lonely Women leaflets that were dropped off at German soldiers, which, which said that their wives and girlfriends back home had joined the League of Lonely Women and were having sex with uh, their comrades who were returning back from leave. Another idea they had that they tried out was they dropped fake mailbags over Germany that were stuffed with poison pen letters. The addresses they got for the letters they got from German phone directories uh, and other city directories. 
and they hoped that the uh, German citizens would pick him up, pick up the mailbag, figure it was lost, and give it to a, a German postmaster and deliver all the mail. Uh, Stanley Lovell even concocted one idea or concocted a, uh, a hormone that if they could ever get to Hitler's vegetables, they would inject the hormone in his vegetables and it would make his mustache fall off and he'd have a falsetto voice, you know, which would clearly be a bummer for the Fuhrer. <laughs> Donovan also turned out to uh, be a horrible manager. During his four years uh, commanding the OSS, he probably violated every rule they teach you in Harvard Business School or Public Administration School. Totally disorganized. In fact, and at one point, uh, a circle of his inner aides, a half dozen of them, staged what was called, or tried to stage, the Palace Revolt, which was they tried to oust him. Uh, they tried to see if they could move him up and out as kind of a broad overseer of the organization. And Donovan, uh, or Donovan's aides, would actually run the day-to-day -day intelligence. Donovan, who by then had launched enough coups to smell one on his, on, on his own, uh, squashed the palace revolt like a bug. Even so, he was a charismatic leader, okay? And that was really what, uh, you know, built the OSS uh, and really defined his uh, tenure over it. When he went out into the field, he rarely gave a command. He would ask somebody to do something and the agents would always uh, loyally follow him. Eventually, he built a spy organization into over 10,000 espionage agents, commandos, intelligence analysts, support people in uh, stations all over the world, which is a pretty remarkable achievement considering, again, he only started out with one guy, which was Wild Bill Donovan. He mounted covert operations in, uh, for the torch invasion, uh, the invasion of North Africa in November 1942. Uh, was fairly successful in the, uh, the battlefield or beach intelligence he provided to Eisenhower's forces. He was far less successful in organizing the Vichy French uh, to cooperate with the invaders coming in. Uh, that basically failed in that endeavor. He mounted, uh, the OSS had uh, significant operations in Sicily and Italy, had a lot of trouble in Italy. Uh, there were a lot of failed operations. Of course, Mark Clark's Fifth Army had a lot of trouble in I Italy, too. That was a very uh, brutal uh, attrition battle for Mark Clark's Fifth Army. He uh, had extensive operations in the Balkans, OSS operations, to help organize and supply the resistance there, particularly in Yugoslavia and, and Greece. In Asia, uh, you had OSS operations against the Japanese in Burma and China. Interestingly, Douglas MacArthur uh, and Admiral Chester Nimitz uh, wouldn't have anything to do with Donovan. They uh, prohibited his men from working in their Pacific theaters. They didn't see much use for the OSS. For the Normandy landing, Donovan uh, had a huge uh, intelligence operation, providing a lot of uh, good intelligence on uh, uh, German defenses, uh, a lot of intelligence for Hap Arnold's Air Force for bombing targets, and uh, they infiltrated by air, parachuted in, a number of commandos, uh, OGs, they call them operational group commandos, and Jedbergs uh, commandos that helped organize the French resistance uh, you know, uh, in advance of the and during the uh, Normandy landing. Donovan also uh, had a penchant for going in on landings too. 
He went in on the Italian landings uh, and the Sicilian landings. He also went in on the Normandy landing, too. Uh, George Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, thought he had Donovan banned from going into the uh, Norman Landing because, and for very good reason, even Donovan's own men thought that uh, being that close to the combat was not the place for the Chief of American Strategic Intelligence Service to be. And Marshall and Eisenhower uh, realized that if Donovan were captured by the Axis there, he'd be a very, very valuable target with all the secrets in his head. But uh, they weren't able to stop Wild Bill. He managed to talk his way uh, aboard a Navy cruiser and landed the second day at Utah Beach for the Normandy landing. Had a grand time, uh, almost got shot up by a Messerschmitt flying over, and uh, marched in, in inland with David uh, K.E. Bruce, who was the head of the London station, where they got pinned down at one point by a, a German machine gun nest. So, and he had some grand stories to tell after that. It took almost two years, really, for Donovan to build up his organization to really get into the fight. But keep in mind, it also took uh, the U.S. Army almost two years to really get into World War II. Uh, They had to train their force and build it up along the way. Uh, And it took a while for his commando operations and his spy operations to really become uh, proficient. And like all intelligence uh, agencies, the OSS experienced its share of failures, some spectacular failures. For example, Donovan thought he had the silver bullet agent, uh, uh, codenamed Vessel, who was planted inside the Vatican in Rome and was supplying him with uh, transcripts of papal conversations that Pope Pius was having with his envoys and other uh, foreign envoys and with the Japanese. Turned out Vessel, though, was an Italian pornographer with a very vivid imagination and was very, very skilled at creating dialogue, uh, completely suckered Donovan and his OSS. Not unlike when you fast forward to, for example, the run-up to the uh, uh, Second Iraq War, where the CIA thought it had a silver bullet intelligence agent in curveball uh, that was who was supplying them with information about Saddam Hussein's biological weapons ca- capability. And it turned out Curveball was uh, a fabricator, too. In fact, he just recently was interviewed by the British uh, press uh, where he admitted, yeah, I made it all up. The, uh, but as the U.S. Army improved, Donovan's OSS improved as well. Uh, and uh, toward the end of the war, it was supplying a significant amount of in- intelligence, reams of it, uh, to the Allies. But as I say, this is also a story of political intrigue. Donovan liked to say he had enemies in Washington as fierce as Hitler was in Europe. He had ferocious battles with J. Edgar Hoover, who thought uh, his organization was just a collection of amateurs, which actually in the beginning it was. Uh, The Pentagon at first bitterly fought uh, the uh, formation of the OSS uh, and launched a guerrilla operation, a rear guard operation against it, practically throughout the war. And in fact, uh, toward, uh, uh, as the war matured for the U.S., toward the end, the Pentagon formed uh, a a secret espionage unit behind Donovan's back. In fact, Mark Stout here is doing groundbreaking work on that research. The unit was nicknamed the Pond, and it was not only spying on the Axis, uh, it was also spying on Donovan's men and Donovan himself. The generals and admirals in the Pentagon 
you know, they fight among themselves uh, in, in any war, and they certainly did uh, in World War II. I mean, uh, British and uh, American senior officers were constantly squabbling. The squabbles with Donovan were even more intense because for many of them, they just didn't really understand what this guy was doing. You know, when he talked about morale operations or sabotage and espionage and League of Lonely Women uh, leaflets, he was, in some respects, talking a foreign language uh, to them. They found a lot of his ideas disturbing, and they found him disturbing, too. Donovan also had a penchant for never taking no for an answer. Okay, he was famous for making end runs around a commander if he got a no from him to get the decision reverse uh, from higher ups. So, for example, when the commander of the Navy told him, no, I can't lend you any naval officers for your OSS, Donovan went to Frank Knox, the secretary of the Navy, and had Frank Knox call that uh, admiral to pressure him to turn over the men. That kind of action doesn't win you a lot of friends in the senior ranks of the Pentagon. One time he was at a cocktail party with an admiral and he had his uh, OSS officers burgle the uh, admiral's office and steal some papers from it, bring it back to him at the cocktail party so he could show off to the admiral uh, what his men could do. Again, uh, I don't know whether the, <laughs> the admiral was impressed or a little nonplussed by that. Donovan also had a uh, penchant for showing up late at Pentagon meetings with other generals and admirals. And he, he would come always impeccably dressed. His uh, uniform was designed by Wetzel's in New York. And very often he would have on it only his Medal of Honor ribbons uh, sewed onto it as a not so subtle reminder to the rest of the admirals and generals in the room with their rows of ribbons and the fruit salad there that he had the only one that counted. Uh, but when he was out in the field with his men, he could be what one, one of his agents said, incorrigibly civilian. His uh, uniform would always be rumpled in his fatigues, almost like what you see here. Sometimes he'd wear a, a, a paisley ascot with his uniform, too. I don't think they let him do that nowadays, do they? But uh, I think what the message Donovan was trying to convey to anybody out in the field that he was running an unconventional operation, and he was an unconventional guy. For the Allies, uh, uh, there, was there was tension there as well. The British played a critical part in helping Donovan form his, his OSS. Even throughout the war, very often the British intelligence sharing with Donovan's OSS was much greater and uh, more deep than his intelligence sharing with his own U.S. Army. Even so, he had fierce fights uh, with British intelligence and special operations over turf in the uh, uh, where they were going to spy uh, overseas. He launched spy operations against Churchill to find out what he was up to. If you read the British records, they launched spy operations, so they kept tabs on Donovan to make sure they knew what he was up to. Up to. In China, our other ally, Shanghai Czech, Donovan set up uh, a paper there, funded it uh, through a publisher. He planted his agents in there to serve as reporters, but also to uh, file intelligence reports on the side, not only on what the Japanese were doing in China, but also what Shanghai Czech was doing in China. The Soviets, the Soviets were our ally uh, in World War II. Donovan at one point paid the Finnish intelligence service uh, $62,500 for 1,500 pages of Soviet military and NKGB documents, which included Soviet NKGB codes. 
The State Department, when they learned about it, was horrified uh, over this because it caused a huge diplomatic flap uh, and complained to Roosevelt, and Roosevelt ordered Donovan to turn the codes back over to the Soviets. In fact, Donovan had his men take him to Andre Gromyko in Washington, who didn't believe for a New York minute that the, uh, Donovan's men hadn't copied the codes and knew it already. Uh, not only actually had Donovan's men copied the codes, but the enterprising Finns also sold, sold the codes to the Japanese for, I think, about 70,000 bucks. Uh, free enterprise, uh, you, know, you know, lives alive and well. Eventually, Donovan could not overcome his political enemies. He had drafted a plan for a post-war Central Intelligence Agency, a post-war CIA, that he wanted to lead. But Walter Trohan, who was a White House reporter for the uh, McCormick-Patterson chain, which was virulently anti-Roosevelt, it was a Republican chain, which published the Washington Times Herald in Washington, got a copy of Donovan's secret uh, plan for setting up the CIA, and he published it in the paper. In a highly inflammatory story, he accused Donovan of wanting to set up what amounted to a, an uh, American Gestapo to spy on not only people overseas, but Americans at home. Now, you call somebody uh, a Gestapo back during World War II, and those are, you know, very incendiary uh, words. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover had an agent spread particularly nasty rumor with Harry Truman's staff uh, that eventually got to, got to Truman about Donovan's personal life. I'll let you read the book to find out what that is, but Truman, uh, uh, Donovan had a number of affairs, uh, had a number of extramarital affairs, uh, and it was well known in Washington and out in the field uh, that he had. Uh, at one point, the pond, I remember the secret SP, uh, Pentagon espionage unit, arranged uh, through a, an officer who was, stationed, who was on the White House staff uh, under Roosevelt and then under Truman, that a 59-page report was placed on uh, Donovan's, I mean, on uh, Truman's desk, accusing the uh, OSS of all kinds of misdeeds, corruption, blown operations. They even accused him of staging an orgy in India at one point. Truman also didn't like Donovan personally. There was bad chemistry between these two guys. I mean, on one side, you had a successful Republican Wall Street lawyer. On the other side, you had a failed Missouri haberdasher who was a diehard Democrat. Okay, that just that, you know, these two guys were never going to match up. Uh, Truman wanted an intelligence service. He knew he needed a national strategic intelligence service, particularly after the war. He just didn't want Donovan heading it up or the OSS having anything to do with it. So on September 20th, 1945, he shut down the OSS, parceled out its units to the Pentagon and the State Department. Truman eventually formed, uh, as I'm sure all of you know, a CIA in 1947, modeled, modeled a good bit uh, after Donovan's vision of what the CIA should be. Donovan wanted to lead that agency. In fact, he had uh, intermediaries quietly lobby uh, Truman to see if he could be head of, CIA, head, of, head of CIA. Of course, Truman wasn't going to have anything to do with that. Donovan had said some uh, mean things about Truman on the presidential campaign trail. When Dwight Eisenhower came in, he had surrogates lobby again to make him head of CIA. Instead, Eisenhower gave the job to Alan Dulles which uh, left Donovan very bitter, even though Dulles had worked for Donovan heading up his OSS station in Bern, 
Donovan always thought that Dulles was a poor manager and that he would have been better as CIA director. Instead, uh, Eisenhower made Donovan ambassador to Thailand, uh, largely as a consolation prize. With that, I think I'll end it there. Uh, if you have any questions about what Donovan you know, did after the war, the legacy of his organization, its effect on uh, modern intelligence, I'll be glad to, glad to field them. Frank Fletcher, is it true that Donovan handed over to um, the NKVD or had handed over to Soviet intelligence a list of agents of OSS in, in Eastern Europe? Uh, I'm not sure. Agents or assets? Well, it's a little complicated. Okay. Donovan uh, proposed in winter of 1943 to set up a liaison uh, arrangement uh, with the NKGB. Uh, and he flew to Moscow to try and set that up. He thought he had Roosevelt on board with it. The Joint Chiefs were uh, pretty much on board with it. And they actually got something set up with uh, Fitton, Pavel Fitton, who was head of the NKGB then. When he, uh, they were going to exchange officers, and there was going to be a Soviet group come to Washington and an OSS group come to uh, Moscow. Both spy chiefs knew that you know this, these groups would be spying on the other, and this was Donovan's opportunity to get into the Soviet uh, Union with his agents in Moscow, uh, and also to get material from uh, from the Soviets used to the war. When J. Edgar Hoover heard about this plan, he went bananas and lobbied uh, Roosevelt uh, not to allow the, uh, the Soviet officers in, not to have this exchange program. I mean, Hoover, Hoover's view was he had his you know, hands full already, keeping an eye on all the Soviets that were here already in the United States spying. So the plan got nixed. Even so, Donovan had a fairly robust exchange of information with uh, the NKGB. Uh, throughout from 1943 on, they exchanged a lot. Actually, a lot of intelligence. Donovan supplied some gadgets uh, to the uh, uh, to the Soviets, which they appreciated. And they supplied information on some of the activities and what they knew was happening, in, particularly in Eastern Europe. As the war uh, was drawing to an end, and uh, you know the Russians were coming in and occupying Eastern European Balkan nations. I believe at some point there, it may have even been Romania, but don't hold me to it, uh, they uh, wanted to know who were the uh, OSS officers that were in, in country then, uh, because they actually were still working together trying to round up uh, you know, Nazi uh, holdovers. This is toward the end of the war. So they exchanged information on that. Eventually, though, uh, the you know the Russians knew that the you know the OSS officers in Eastern Europe were going to be spying on them uh, as much as working working with them, and they uh, forced them all out of uh, the Balkan nations and the OSS. So, but there was a brief exchange of information. Oh, oh, did the British share any of the details of the Enigma? Uh, operation with Donovan? Yes. Uh, they, uh, they shared Ultra. Uh, Donovan had men 
men and women at uh, Bletchley Park working with the British, and they got access to the raw take uh, of Eltra. In fact, the, the British were very, very important in helping Donovan set up his counterintelligence operation, which was called X2. Uh, and it's ironic that uh, they actually shared more of their uh, intercept uh, work than the Americans did with Donovan. Donovan never had direct access to magic. Magic was the uh, uh, Navy Army code-breaking capability of the Japanese uh, diplomatic and military codes. Uh, all he would get could get from uh, magic were summaries of their reports. Marshall didn't trust Donovan's organization to keep secrets. They thought he had, you know, was loose on security. But uh, in the case of the Brits, he, uh, they got direct access and there was very, very close cooperation there. Uh, where do you see yourself differing from the two previous biographers of Donovan? <laughs> uh, there, are actually, there are actually three biographies. Okay, there was the first one written by Corey Ford of, uh, on Donovan. He was uh, screened by the Donovan family and the Donovan Leisure Law Firm and wrote, largely wrote a, a hagiographic hey uh, portrait of Donovan uh, that the law firm edited uh, at the end. Uh, Anthony Cave Brown wrote The Last Hero and he had access to the uh, uh, original Donovan microfilm that he hastily took of all his, all his files in his office and carted off to New York. He didn't have access to a lot of the newer material that, that, that's come out. And there's a lot of speculation in Kay Brown's book on things Donovan did that when you look at the actual record, turns out it, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, the other book was Richard Dunlop, who wrote a biography of Donovan around the same time in, in the early 80s, based largely on uh, anecdotes or reminiscences of former OSS officers. As any historian or biographer will tell you, uh, you know, anecdotes are really very helpful uh, to bringing life to your story, but memories fade after 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So there were instances in uh, his book, too, uh, that they had Donovan in, in different places. I called them Elvis sightings when I was doing the research, where he really, you know, he wasn't there. He, he wasn't, you know, doing what they thought he did, or maybe somebody recalled it uh, vaguely. What I tried to do was at least base it on the record uh, and use the anecdotes. There's a lot of oral histories out there for OSS officers that are really valuable. What was the extent of communist penetration of OSS? Uh, they've done a lot of studies uh, on that, and I don't have the numbers in my head, but it's in the book. Uh, there, there were at least like a half dozen in uh, the OSS headquarters uh, who were believed to have uh, you know, either communist sympathies or were feeding information to uh, Soviet intelligence. Uh, there were breaches and penetrations at stations all around, uh, all around the world, and the CIA has done some good analysis of that. Uh, Donovan knew he had you know, communists in his organization. He actually had a very complicated relationship with communists. He wanted to work with them, okay, but he didn't necessarily want them working for him. Okay, so he would uh, set up relationships with communists in the U.S., the Communist Party of the U.S., and uh, with communists overseas, but he could be very, very harsh 
on communists he found in his organization, particularly if they were being investigated by Congress or the name popped up there or J. J. Edgar Hoover found out about him. So he could be very harsh there. But he recognized even till the end, even though he never said it publicly, that there were probably, I, th I think I have in the book, uh, the number about 40 people in his organization that he thought were communist leading uh, or whatever. But there was never any evidence that that communist infiltration or the moles or anything did anything really to change the outcome of the war in any which way because we were we were uh, allies with the Soviets then. Uh, so, uh, and they've done assessments since then and said, you know, that it didn't really have a huge effect than just, you know, giving the Soviets information on what the OSS was doing. Now, Donovan tried to plan his own people in the NKGB, particularly uh, as they moved into Eastern Europe. Uh, and even as he was trying to set up a liaison re uh, relationship with the NKGB, he had made arrangements with oil executives that were going over under a Lend-Lease to help uh, the Russians with oil exploration uh, to report to him on anything they saw over there, too. Did uh, Donovan and the OSS have uh, any relationship with the effort to deny the Nazis the atom bomb? I'm sorry, say that again. With a... uh, did Donovan and the OSS have any uh, relationships with the effort to deny the Nazis the atom bomb? Oh, did I? yeah. Uh, they had uh, it was the, the Azusa Project. Uh, Mo Berg, who was a very famous, he was a former catcher, um, uh, major league catcher, was involved in that. Uh, Leslie Grove who the general in charge of the Manhattan Project had gone to Donovan, uh, never told him in detail or never told him anything really about the Manhattan Project itself, but he asked Donovan to have his officers go out and scour anything they could find on uh, German and Italian uh, scientific efforts to develop a, a, nuclear, a nuclear device. And they collected a lot of information for uh, Leslie Grover that they turned over. And I think they all suspected that the reason they were collecting it was because the U.S. was uh, building its uh, own nuclear weapon. Uh, and basically they came back with the conclusion that the, uh, you know, the, the Germans in particular were far behind in, in their nuclear weapon development. Yes. Thanks. I read a review of your book that mentions a very favorable one in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, good. But, but it mentioned that uh, Donovan was sort of an early opponent of Nazism, or had criticized. And I wondered what his, you know, if you could just explain a bit about that. Yeah, he uh, made a lot of trips overseas as basically as an international lawyer, uh, drumming up business for his law firm or representing clients overseas. This is in the, uh, the 20s and the 30s. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover thought he was a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, he collected a lot of information uh, and made a lot of contacts in in Berlin. Some of whom, some of which proved useful uh, much later during the war. Uh, but this was mainly in gathering uh, business information and also in protecting his clients in Germany as the Nazis took over. So he uh, represented uh, companies uh, with with. Uh, from major Jewish families to try and prevent the Nazis from ex expropriating uh, their property or their businesses. He uh, signed a petition to, uh, uh, I think, to you know, 
prevent the prosecution of uh, uh, German Jews in courts. So he was very, very active on that. And he, uh, I mean, he had no illusions about you know, what the Nazis were about and Adolf Hitler. He viewed Hitler as, uh, and he told friends that this was the incarnation of evil. Uh, and he was really, you know, fascinated by Hitler throughout, throughout the war. In fact, at one point he had uh, a team of psychologists and psychiatrists do a very extensive uh, psychological profile of Hitler, which is actually fairly good. I read through the whole thing. It's fascinating. I mean, they predicted, among other things, that Hitler would likely never surrender, that he would hold, hold up and, you know, fight it out and commit suicide at the end. They also had uh, a good bit of information they'd collected on Hitler's sex life, too, and Donovan had that spiced up and uh, sent out as propaganda later on. You know, he thought that would be a good propaganda tool. Yes. So as a biographer, I know that there are always uh, remain questions you can't answer about your subject. Is there anything about Donovan you weren't, you're still questioning, you still don't feel you know everything about? Uh, yeah, there are. I mean, he, 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 he didn't, uh, it's interesting. He never wanted to write an autobiography of himself. There were several publishers who approached him toward the end of the war asking if he'd be interested, and he didn't want to do that. He was very, very particular about the OSS history and how that would be told, and he edited that uh, very, the final history uh, very, very carefully. Uh, there are still kind of questions about where he was uh, at certain points in the war that you really can't pin down. There's been a lot of rumors, uh, and some of the rumors I was able to uh, discover that weren't true. For, for example, there was a, a terrific rumor out there, a report actually, it was in previous biographies, that uh, Donovan went into uh, liberated France uh, in a Jeep with Ernest Hemingway. And they went to the Ritz Hotel and had the bartender order up uh, two dozen martinis there for everybody. I thought it was a terrific uh, anecdote. I was going to use it in the book until I found out it wasn't true. Uh, it was David Bruce that went in with uh, uh, Donovan into, into the Ritz Hotel. There was a lot of speculation, and I don't know if we, that Donovan uh, had secret meetings with Admiral Canaris, the head of the Abwehr uh, German intelligence. I could find nothing in the uh, OSS records to indicate that was ever the case. There was one approach by one of Donovan's officers to Canaris that never came about. Maybe there's some something there out there that nobody's seen. Uh, but although, you know, it would have probably turned up in the OSS records. The good news about the OSS records is that practically all of them are declassified. I don't think there's that much left uh, classified now. The bad news is that all of them are declassified because there's millions and millions of pages uh, over at the National Archives that, I mean, just Donovan's own uh, personal papers in his office number of over 100,000 pages, which I had to go through, uh, which took a while. But there, yeah, you know, I'm sure there's a mystery out there that has, and I still got FOIA, uh, Freedom of Information Act requests out there, hoping to find it, you know, for the next edition. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One is a political intrigue. I mean, you touch on the World War II and, the, and that, but how much of that could have come from World War One? Because you hear the stories like Truman being an artillery officer, not providing support. The other one is George V. Strong, who was the Army G-2, mm -hmm. who was a JAG officer and the movements officer for U.S. in World War One. Uh, you know, where some of this conflict could have come from way back when. The 
other one, and I know in your index you have Colonel Eddy, and that's as far. You mentioned Colonel Eddy. Colonel Eddy, you're right. Mm -hmm. But do you touch on the 2677th OSS regiment that operated in North Africa, the Mediterranean? Because I know you mentioned the operations in Greece, which involved the only, as far as I know, I'm talking to other people, the only U.S. Army unit to be sent from the Army to the OSS as a unit. Mm -hmm. That was the uh, 122nd. Yeah, uh, on the first thing, on, on the World War I connection, there's been a story out there, and it's repeated in a lot of books, and you can find it on the internet, uh, that uh, Truman was supposed to uh, supply uh, artillery cover for uh, the battle uh, at Londres at St. George, there where uh, Donovan won his Medal of Honor, and where he had a, uh, got shot through the leg. Uh, and that Truman didn't, and Donovan complained uh, later on, and Truman heard about it and never forgot it. Uh, turns out it's an old wives' tale. Didn't happen. Truman's unit wasn't there uh, that day and wasn't supplying artillery cover. But for some reason, this got repeated and it gets mentioned kind of uh, tangentially in uh, Anthony K. Brown's book. But I went through all the records at the Truman Library, all the World War I records, to piece where Truman was and where Donovan was, and they weren't uh, together during that battle. Uh, the uh, George Strong, George V. Strong, who was head of Army G2, the intelligence section, was uh, one of Donovan's most uh, implacable enemies. Uh, he was known as George V because he was kind of imperious manner, but he was actually a warrior scholar, a uh, very learned person, but he absolutely despised Donovan and fought him the, uh, the whole time. And Donovan hated uh, George V too. And I think that animosity built uh, the minute the uh, OSS was formed. I don't know how much there was any World War I connection there. As far as Colonel Eddy, of course, Colonel Eddy, who uh, headed up Donovan's, a lot of his covert action and covert warfare operations leading up to the Torch invasion, uh, he was a, uh, a World War I hero, uh, got his leg shot off. Uh, and you know had rows of ribbons. Uh, in fact, when he met George Patton at one point, Patton thought, "Boy, this this guy must be you know really one tough son of a gun." I think he, Patton used a little different word uh, because you know it looks like he's you know been shot at quite a bit. Uh, and uh, you know Eddie had some real good operations uh, for Donovan in North Africa. Again, they did they were not able to deliver on. Uh, their hope and promise that they could organize uh, the Vichy French, French to you know support you know or go along with the Allied landing in North Africa. The and one of the other reasons oh. why I mentioned the twenty six seventy seventh is it's often said the OSS had no SIGINT effort, and you find with the twenty six seventy seventh Africa one hundred one, which was a SIGINT unit, and the Army actually was making use out of one piece of it, which kind of killed the uh, effectiveness of the overall network. There could have been something, I say, at the tactical level, at the national level, Donovan wanted to replicate magic, too, since he was denied access to it. In fact, he set up a dummy corporation called FBQ to set it up. Uh, and in fact, the leader of the secret spy unit uh, the military spy unit that was spying on the Axis and Donovan at one point had been uh, working on, or actually I think he was heading up for Donovan, that FBQ 
uh, organization. Donovan basically got rid of him. Uh, thought he was kind of a conspiracy uh, buff. And Marshall eventually shut down that uh, ad hoc uh, uh, you know, intercept unit because he didn't want anything conflicting uh, with magic. We have one more in the back. Why don't we take a couple more, Doug? Oh, okay, sure. Okay. Hi. Uh, could you elaborate on the uh, relationship or rivalry of uh, Donovan's British counterpart, uh, whose name I don't recall, but he went by Intrepid, or he was known as Intrepid? Oh, Stevenson. Stevenson. Yeah. Uh, Bill Stevenson. They're, uh, they were very, very close. Uh, and Stevenson was very, very helpful in, for Donovan in setting up uh, the OSS, provided him a lot of help in New York. Donovan had uh, tensor relationships with Stuart Menzies, who was head of British intelligence, and what Sir Charles Hambro, who was uh, head of uh, British Special Operations, British SOE. There were constant fights. Uh, I mean, basically what happened was Donovan really couldn't have formed his organization in the beginning without British help. But it was like kind of a teenager, you know, once you learn to drive dad's car, you don't want dad sitting in your uh, seat right next to you, you're following you on your dates, which was what happened uh, with the relationship between the British and the U.S. The British uh, would have preferred to have the OSS be basically subjects of the crown and work as auxiliaries uh, for uh, the British effort out there. And, you know, for their side of the story, they had seasoned operatives out there that have been for a long time, out there for a long time. And here were these American cowboys from the OSS coming in and mucking up the works out there and uh, getting in the way they thought. Donovan uh, knew that what the British wanted out of him. They, they knew he wanted, they wanted him and his organization to be an auxiliary of British special operations and intelligence. Uh, and he fought that very early on. In fact, there was a famous line. He told a British special operations uh, representative in New York at one point, he said, uh, I won't let uh, me or my organization be nobbled by you. Does anybody know what novel is? I didn't either until I looked it up in the dictionary. It's British slang for fixing a racehorse to lose. Uh, and he was worried that the Brits were going to be, you know, nobbling him. He also thought the British uh, used his organization for their own purposes and, uh, you know, would discard him, you know, when they didn't need him. The Brits, Hambro, heard uh, these statements and didn't, be, didn't appreciate being called a horse fixer or a prostitute. Uh, and so, you know, they, you know, throughout the war, there was that, you know, that tension between the two. But Donovan, uh, you know, realized even at the end, at the very end, uh, that he couldn't have built up what he had without, without the British help. In your research, did you get the feeling that Roosevelt either did not discourage or actively encourage the competition between Donovan and uh, military intelligence and solo players uh, who volunteered at various times? Uh, yeah. He, Roosevelt didn't discourage that competition. He liked the creative tension. So he... If you talk or if you read the, uh, the histories of Roosevelt's senior aides, even Harry Hopkins, even as close as people like Steve Early, none of them ever really knew what Roosevelt was up to with everything. You know, he kept 
things compartmentalized, and he plays, played aides off of uh, one another. Donovan, for example, didn't learned after he formed, uh, or the, the coordinator of information was formed, that Roosevelt had a secret spy unit in the White House, an off-the-books unit run by John Franklin Carter, who was a columnist in Washington, a newspaper columnist. In fact, he ran the secret spy unit while he was writing columns all the time which kind of violates some press government rule. I'm not sure what it is, but it certainly violates it. Uh, and Donovan, I mean, uh, Roosevelt encouraged this tension bet between the two. And every now and then he would yank Donovan's chain back uh, or he'd let uh, Army Intelligence George Strong, General George Strong, do something that would just absolutely enrage Donovan. Donovan actually had a very complicated relationship with Roosevelt, too, because, again, they were from opposite parties. Roosevelt's senior staff was decidedly worried about what uh, they thought was the Republican cast to the OSS, that all the best and the brightest he brought in were the best and the brightest from the Republican Party. And you, you had you know, Henry Stimson as Secretary of War, Frank Knox as Secretary of Navy, and Donovan as head of as intelligence service. And a lot of White House aides were, were thinking to themselves, what are we doing here, running a farm team for the future presidential candidates? Because you know, Donovan wanted to be president of the United States at one point. Frank Knox had ran for president of the United States on the Republican ticket. So uh, the two men, you know, Roosevelt liked Donovan, liked his ideas, but it was not a personal relationship. And Donovan never really wanted to make it a personal relationship either. Well, Doug Waller, thank you for a terrific presentation and quite clearly a terrific book. Okay. Okay, Doug will be in the back signing copies of his book. Thank you all so much for joining us this afternoon. Have a great afternoon. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.